Hi, I'm Diane with Best Life, Best Death, and I'm excited today to have a special guest on my podcast. Uh, Minoti Rajput is a wealth advisor and an author. And I first learned of one of her books called Beyond a Parent's Love, Lesson Learned in Life Planning for Special Needs Children. Uh, I first learned of this book this summer, and I was intrigued, read the book, and I'm very happy to have Minoti with me here today. Hi. Thank you very much, Diane. I'm really honored that you're doing this podcast for me. I appreciate it. Well, I think it's such an interesting topic. I mean, the whole end of life field is filled with interesting subjects, including financial subjects. And then what you kind of specialized in in your career is even a more specialized subtopic, but I think it affects so many families. So tell us a little, you know, tell us your kind of history, how you got into this, and then we'll get into the book. Well, I'm an immigrant woman from India. I came to the United States um, um, with an MBA in finance and some banking experience. And that was in 1979, December, so 1980, when I wanted to do something similar that I did it at the bank in India, which was uh, really doing financial planning for small business owners, that really wasn't happen happening as much at the bank level in the United States. And I was told that if you want to do that, you have to become a life insurance agent or a stockbroker. And none of them really appealed to me because bank office in India for a woman was really very secure in a high position job and so on. But Reluctantly, I started in the insurance industry, and I learned a lot about business and estate planning through that. But what I discovered about myself is that I was an educator. And uh, I had a lot of odds against me because I was a minority twice. I was a woman and a woman of color. Breaking into this male-dominant industry was not easy. My friends, including my spouse, who came from India or other South Asian countries, they were engineers, doctors, pharmacists. They could assimilate in their hospital or Ford Motor Company environment very easily. I had to find one client at a time, but that's when I also found out that I had the same determination and zeal like a typical immigrant would have. So my practice built gradually with small business owners, doctors, small family members and so on. But after I had been in the industry 10 years, I felt that I needed to add another component that was maybe intellectually stimulating and also emotionally very rewarding. And I also wanted to separate myself from other advisors who had a general practice, but I really couldn't put my finger into that. Should I work with women who were getting divorced or just work on certain areas? But then in 1989, January, February, March, three different families came to me for their regular plan. And in doing my fact finding, I discovered that each one of them had an adult child with special needs and they had no clue what's gonna happen to them when the parents passed away. That's when I had my aha moment because also what came to surface in my mind is what was in my family. My older sister who's a physician, now retired, and she lives in England, so it's not that I saw her all the time, but her first born child, the first grandchild in my family 
was diagnosed to have autism in 1977. And my sister as a physician had no clue what autism meant. <clears throat> so then I knew how a family could be impacted. I said, this is what I needed to do, except that there was no information available. There were three attorneys in the entire, uh, in my area who were doing legal documents for special needs planning, but that was not enough. Nobody was doing planning. There was no internet at that time to find more information. After a lot of searching, I found a advisor called Phyllis Kramer in Boston area who was doing this at that time for seven, eight years. And I begged her to teach me the basics um, for several months until she agreed. And we decided to establish special needs planning in Michigan. I learned a lot from her for the first two years, but it was also a lot of going to the library and sitting down with physicians and psychiatrists to understand the different mental illnesses, medications, symptoms, and things like that. And I learned to do education and I, I used my talent as an educator that I had discovered I was good at and then started to do workshops in um, advocacy organizations and uh, special ed schools for the parents. That was the beginning. And since that time, I have counseled and my team at the office have counseled nearly 1800 family members nationwide. And I still continue to do that. And that's a passion that we have and a commitment from my firm that will continue to do this. I think it's so incredible that you, you know, you opened your heart to sort of like, I want this, this practice and this work and this skill that I've developed to have a, a bit, you know, some other heart level or emotional level. And then boom, these families arrived in your practice. And this has got to be one of the most heart-wrenching things. I mean, I can imagine that families with special needs kids wrestle with this on a daily basis. They think, what will happen to my child? So how incredible that you kind of found a way to impact all these families and support them. It's got to be just a morass to figure out where to even begin. Well, most families, and I'm talking about when I started in 1989, 90, <clears throat> the older parents came still from the culture of hiding this behind the doors. Yes. Not sharing. There was shame involved in it. There was challenge of not having other people that they can group together. And yet from the same generation, there were parents who became advocate and started the organizations such as the National Association for Mental Illness, National Alliance, or the ARCs, the, we don't use the acronym anymore for what it stood for originally, but the Association for Retarded Citizens. But those were started by them to share information because it's a very lonely world to be this parent and deal with it on a daily day-to-day -day basis, see their dreams be crushed. And then as they age, um, they're connected with this child and the parents believe that they are the only people who can provide the care. I have no clue what's gonna happen when they are gone. So it wasn't easy to break this. So in order for me to have a practice with a subspecialty, it's almost like in order for you to be a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist, you have to be a very good internist first, which I had found that I was a very good financial planner, wealth advisor, well-trained in all of the cash flow, retirement planning, investment planning, estate planning. This was a very difficult component to be added. 
So in addition to having compassion, learning about the different uh, special needs uh, characteristics, disabilities, um, I also had to be a very good business planner because how do I really keep up my general practice and add this because it was not that I was gonna make a lot of revenue initially. I had to spend a lot of time, which means I was willing to give up, give up something in order to have this specialty until it really starts to grow. But the more I educated people, people were convinced that they better do this. They have to protect their child's government benefits and they better not do anything wrong that could jeopardize the future security of this child. So initially, when there was no information available, I was carrying that torch for them to see the light. And then it happened very quickly. The schools were very willing to invite us to do this because there was nobody else to do that. As time went by, there were other competitors and there were the ARC who were providing that. And I learned to be selective where I wanted to speak and where I didn't want to speak. But our commitment was, we are not just gonna give you the seminar or workshop and let you go because you don't have anybody else that you can meet who can guide you through this. You may have a financial planner, but they have no clue how this planning is to be done. So we invited them for a complimentary consultation. And we had 60, 70% people wanting that consultation. Of that, 40, 50% became clients. So we would meet with them and ask them questions that they had not even let them ask themselves. Right. So we became right. very good. I became very good fact finder. Intuitiveness helped me. And so then they said, aha, nobody else has asked me this question. So this person I can connect with and they allow us to do their planning. We did this planning and then we said, this is, this is the legal documents that you need. We researched which attorneys would be good for each of those individuals, price-wise, knowledge-wise, geographic location-wise, and we make that happen. And that's how we have worked all these years. Well, I think I, I, I really am um, appreciative of how you broke ground in, as you said, in a, in a time when a lot of this was in the shadows and families were ashamed and it was difficult to kind of get information. And um, that has all just exploded and changed, but there are still some of these same challenges. And I wanna read something from your book, um, this, um, Minoti's book is called Beyond a Parent's Love. And she says in the introduction, the number of people diagnosed with disabilities is at a record high, partly due to early diagnosis and greater awareness. About 13% of students in public schools need special education services, according to a 2014 statistics. And that includes those with learning disabilities. Nationwide, the number of students ages six to 21 classified on the autism spectrum rose 165% between 2005 and 2015. And students with other quote, health impairments, other health impairments increased by about 51% during the same 10 year span. So there's really greater awareness and more information. And the internet of course is a, is a you know, huge place where families can now go both for information and connection to move out of isolation. But there's still this, every, every family is so specific and every um, special needs 
child or adult is so specific and every family's financial information and situation is so specific. So I don't know, do you wanna say a little about that or talk about how you organize the book around these kinds of very individualized, beautiful personal stories? Well, what I wanna to talk to you about is why are people more aware of this? Because I think that um, in the past when people saw their child developing differently, they either kept on hoping that things would get better or the schools would help, help them a little bit better or many of the doctors who say, oh no, give it your time, your child will speak or walk. <clears throat> and they just lived with it and acceptance was there. But the younger parents, you know, after I would say, I'd been doing this for 10 years, I saw people being more aware because the schools helped them a lot. There was no Autism Alliance program, um, AI, autism um, education part available in any of the schools. Now almost every school has. So the times have changed and the help has been uh, available. There are early intervention programs in school. So as soon as a child, is, when a parent recognizes that the growth is not happening the way my older child has or my niece or nephew has, they have the alerts and they will go to the pediatrician and they will go to the school or they will research. And the information that has been available, that has been great. But also the definition of some of the disabilities have gotten so broad. So we no longer just say that this person has been diagnosed with autism. And of course there are etiquettes in the special needs area or the disability area. Uh, we typically say the person has autism rather than calling them autistic and things of that nature. But it's the spectrum, because when I saw my niece, when she was a year old, um, she didn't walk until she was 18 months, but she typically flapped and she rocked, but you don't see that all the time. So you may have somebody who says mildly autistic, or maybe on the spectrum, it has Asperger's syndrome. Some of the kids may have certain specialty uh, intelligence or liking towards or expertise. <clears throat> they may be genius in math or they may be very good in painting or being, playing piano, but they have no social skills and they will never come out of their room and they cannot live by themselves. So the parents are often kind of bewildered that my child can do this, but still cannot do this. How do I plan? So learning about the various disabilities is extremely important for somebody who is in this line of work, because the idea is that if your child has certain qualities or, or, or high functioning, is the government going to recognize that this child still needs benefits? Because that's a fight really with the social security system. So we also train them how to do that basically and send them to the advocacy organization that if you have a high function child, you may have actually dual the problem. Because if your child is denied the government benefits, then the responsibility is all on you as a parent because your child may still not be able to get a job that earns them enough so that they can be self-sufficient. So the statistics are high. Sometimes the physicians have told us that a lot of career people are marrying late, having children late, and a lot of them have multiple births. Sometimes we see those kind of issues but I think it's generally being aware that there are certain things because they may have happened before. Now they are more aware of it and being diagnosed. So those are multiple reasons. 
Well, and you certainly, you talk about working with autism spectrum, Down syndrome, Williams syndrome, Angel Man syndrome, and other syndromes that result in cognitive impairment. There's also physical impairments such as blindness, deafness, cerebral palsy. And then you have a, a whole specialty of working with mental illness, including schizophrenia, manic depression, socioaffected disorders, and others. And um, yeah, again, I think the book is filled with these moving stories that are all different. And that's, that's what's powerful is the individual, individual stories. Yes, and then there are those who have developmental disabilities such as autism, but may also be bipolar. Yeah. So they're dual diagnosis. And then that creates a challenge because the way the government funds work, they divide it. This is the fund that we are gonna have for the developmental disability uh, folks. And this is what the budget is for the mental ill. But when, when, what happens when you cross the line? Who supports you? So right. that, because the government doesn't understand all, a lot of those things. And so the parents get confused and where can they send a person whose higher symptoms or greater symptoms are that of mental illness. So people often have different kinds of challenges. Right, and you really, you, you clearly have been a huge advocate for people to figure out what's, what are the advocacy groups for the situation their family is? What are the government plans? As you said, what's the best angle for that family? And you, you really talk about a team approach to this. How does yeah. the family even begin? Well, the way I look at it is that they may or may not have, depending upon the age of the child at the age of 18, if there has been a diagnosis prior to reaching age 18, the child will most likely qualify for what we call SSI, <clears throat> Supplemental Security Income, which is a monthly stipend that increases with inflation. In Michigan, currently it's almost $800 a month, provided the child is paying his or her, her fair share of living with the parents or are living elsewhere, basically. But that comes with Medicaid and it's a program that is for, um, it, it, you have to qualify for it. It's not an entitlement. And the requirement for the qualification is an established diagnosis of disability and also that they do not have any assets under their name more than $2,000. So, um, but that government benefits is huge. Um, money can, you cannot, the best thing that you can do is to qualify for for that, that particular benefit um, because it's the best insurance money cannot buy. But once they know this government benefits, they also recognize, people have to recognize that this will never be enough because a child with just that money and certain things that the government provides <clears throat> such as medication and there are Medicaid doesn't want to pay for group homes anymore. In fact, Medicaid is monitored by community mental health of the county that you live in and community mental health wants people to live in the community and not in group homes or not have the feeling of institutionalization, which is expensive. So that, in, and um, there are other things, transportation, respite, training for employment and things like that they provide, but that's never enough. And we are constantly, for the last 30 years, I have been hearing that there's not enough money to take care of everything. So the parents have to do their planning. They have to do their own planning for retirement, risk management for insurance, estate planning, but they have to do planning, financial planning for somebody that they're retiring for three people. Sometimes people have more than one special needs child. 
so they have to retire for four people. That requires special kinds of financial plan. So we always say you need to start with a specialized financial planner or wealth advisor who knows about, who's an expert on special needs planning, because your planning is not going to be standard. It's going to be different. But once you have that, the financial planner should be able to uh, have whatever it takes to, to implement the plan, whether it's investment, insurance, and those matters. Once you're identified what the financial planning is, then you want to meet with the attorney and let them take a look at the copy of the plan, understand the family structure, and have the planner be part of that meeting with the attorney, because attorneys will do a great job of doing the documents. Very few attorneys will do your planning. Have asked the question, okay, who do you want to name as a successor trustee? But we say, tell us about the oldest son. Well, he lives abroad. He's not a suitable trustee. But I have named him in my documents because of the order of the birth or the gender of the children. You know, so we do a lot of investigation. Somebody will say, well, my, ch my children are still young, so I'm going to appoint my sister. Well, I haven't really talked to my sister about this because I don't think I don't trust my brother-in-law. Well, that's not the right approach then. So we have to do all this fact-finding that the attorney may or may not have the time or have the skills to do it. So we prepare all these things and then invite the attorney to do that. And then attorney has to be specialized in doing special needs planning documents, basically. So that's the first team approach. But then in, at times when the parents die, the trust comes to fruition, you need a CPA who knows how to file the taxes of the special needs trust. Occasionally, a person will not have any family members who can step in to be the trustee when the parents both die. So, well, the third party, for example, here in Michigan, the Oakland ARC and the Macomb County ARC have the capability of being the trustees. They will work with us for all the financial management. They are an advocacy organization. Sometimes you look for an independent trust company. So that becomes part of the team. So there are multiple people. And then sometimes you talk to, through the parents and with their help, talk to the school people if it's necessary or sometimes a child is able to go for higher education to a community college and things like that. So an educator may be part of what we call the IEP session, the, the documentation that they um, work on is to have a plan, independent plan for this person and our input becomes necessary. So all of this and later on, where is my child gonna live? Your house, another house, uh, what is it that we also add our input in those matters? So it all is uh, different types of people that come together, not all at the same time, but right. at different, uh, during the phase of their entire planning things, things change. Right. It's like this spiral approach. It's like, first yeah. you have to have a diagnosis with doctors, then you have to have the advocacy organizations and the government. A specialized financial planner can be a huge asset specialized attorney who understands this, a CPA, the school, educators. Yes, and I imagine that you need, it isn't linear, you need different people at different times, but you really need important people on the team. I, I was also struck, um, you talked in the book about a team approach, and you also talked about the, the importance of communication and how important it was to start early. And, you know, that's where kind of the best life, death, best death kind of interest comes into this, because I, I feel like what I'm an advocate for is starting conversations. 
And so you really say, have this conversation. Um, you've got a moving story in the book about an older, uh, a son in the family who wasn't really included in the conversations with the family. And yet he ended up being the long-term caregiver for the special needs child, sibling of his. And, and so the importance of including the children, the in-laws, the brothers and sisters, the family members, the dear family friends, and also these um, professional advocates. All of those need to coordinate together to really make this um, be an effective plan. Right, so today the parents are a lot open uh, about this, but you know, the other children leave home when they're 18 for, for work, for education, for work, and they're very dedicated. They'll call their sibling, hey, Kathy, or hey, Sue, what's going on? What are you doing? And as much as they love, when you're not living together, you really don't know what's happening. So one of the things that one must do is what we call write a document, letter of intent. Oh. And this is where the parents um, need to write everything that they know about the child, the ability, the inability, the security blanket, or the uncle and aunt that they don't like or like, or the cousins, and the, the medical history, the dental records, and uh, allergies, this medication doesn't work. The school records and uh, uh, fine motor skill, large motor skills, special Olympics participation. Everything a huge amount do. of sort of what's the picture of this person? Right. Keep mm -hmm. writing about it and update that. And today you can just do on a Word document and put it on your desktop and then share that periodically. I have the Sen family story in my book, how the mom started to write the blogs and shared the blogs with the successor trustee so that they are kept updated. And she did it in a beautiful story form so that the parents are looking at, huh, my son was able to strive something or this is a new accomplishment. So documenting this and sharing this and somebody's gonna be in your shoes someday, but you cannot let them just invite into this major role without giving them enough information. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to your child with special needs. Right, and, and nobody else knows the child the way that you do. Right. One of the things I love about the chapters in your book is that they're very personal stories about, the, about families in different situations. And, and as we said, they range in their special needs and they range in the family makeup and they range in the financial situation. Correct. But every chapter ends with insights from that family. And I think they're very helpful. And one of them I thought was so beautiful. Um, one of the insights from a family uh, profiled in the book says, accepting the disability of a child takes time and courage. Realistic approaches to planning help families find more options for the future care of their loved ones. And also you talk about how plans need to be in place and make a plan, but be ready to change it. Circumstances happen. The person you thought who was going to be the the caretaker for your child gets ill themselves. Um, there, there's this kind of quality of needing to make a plan and then let it be adaptable. It's a dynamic situation. It's not something that's um, set up and then that's the end of it. So revisiting this with the team. Correct. And then you. you are the right person to understand this because of what you do. Life and death and and. Uh, walking through the path of the vulnerability of your own life expectancy here. And also the aging process of a person with disability is also difficult at times. You know, 
now Down syndrome um, diagnosed people with disability, they never had a longer life expectancy. But now a lot of them are living longer. And one thing often that is common among them is early Alzheimer's. So the care pattern changes, but we call it life planning. So the life planning, when we first meet a client, they talk about retirement planning, investment planning, but there comes a phase where the parents are in their late 70s, 80s, and their adult children, non-special needs children, are in their mid 50s and so on. And all of a sudden, some of them are out of town and some who are living here have their own children issue. I just met with the family yesterday and everybody gathered. And we talked about the parents have done very well. They can look after themselves. Their daughter lives, high functioning daughter, lives with a boyfriend, okay? But the boyfriend is not well. What happens if she comes back? Are you gonna be able to be prepared to take care? Because my client, the mom had a stroke and she's not as bright as she used to be. But the son who lives in out of state was there with his wife. And we talked about, well, they have too many bank accounts. We have to consolidate, but we spend a fair amount of time. What would you do when the mom and dad cannot be looked after at home by themselves? Before you even talk about your sister, we have to think about you were counting on the support system for the parents. Parents are always gonna be there, well, they're not, okay? Even the other siblings who have always relied on the parents, that my sister is in good hands because my parents are doing this. Now there's a shift in the gear here. And how do they step in? So our office, because we know the history, have shared a lot of information and given them homework. Here is a list of the organizations, entities for assisted living facilities for your parents. How do you do that? And then when they are not there, what's gonna be your role? And because you cannot do everything, we will have to connect you with the ARC and see how many of your tasks can be channeled or transferred to them, but you be the supervisor or overseer of everything. So it's a life planning matter, first for the parents who are aging and as their special need people are aging also, then what do you do for them? Because housing is gonna be crisis, and advocacy. One of my friends owns a franchise of providing caregiving at home. And she was telling during the pandemic, it's impossible to find the caregivers. And also the challenges that, you know, these people are, they spend so many hours in difficulty in caring for aging people or special needs people, they don't get paid well. It's very hard to keep them employed. So we have such crisis constantly and parents are really frustrated. They're scared, they're worried. So that you, we can only do the best you can. That's all one can do. But the siblings have to step up and know what's happening basically. Manodi, I think that's a beautiful place to, to pause and stop this conversation. We could go on all afternoon. It's, I think, ending with the idea that you do the best you can and you have to be direct and you have to be in conversation about these things with really with all the players. And I think yes. also that th these things take time. You know, you don't have one conversation and it's sorted out, but you just kind of make it part of the family conversation, uh, sometimes having family meetings, sometimes with extra, you know, outside people to help facilitate that family meeting and really get everyone on the same page with, 
how do we manage the aging parents and the special needs sibling and our own children and you know this whole complex family dynamic but you know we we can do it i i have a lot of faith in people having conversations but to have the conversation you have to be willing to say i i am mortal you know this life will end and i think if you can talk about death then you can talk about money and all the other aspects of life so I thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation with Minoti Rajput, author of Beyond a Parent's Love, Lesson Learned in Life Planning for Special Needs Children. And they can I, find it on amazon.com. You can find it on Amazon and um, it's a terrific read and I think will be a real asset for so many families. Thanks so and much. you can look me up on Google anytime. Awesome. It's M-I-N-O-T-I. R-A-J-P-U-T. Thank you, Diane. And continue your good work too. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Diane Hullett with the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Hey, Minoti, I sometimes end with a guest with one special question. Uh, what are you grateful for today? For the sun that's shining, the fact that I'm healthy, sitting here, with no regrets of what I've done in my life. And I'm very thankful to God for giving me this opportunity to serve the way I have served. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.